Please do open your Bibles, and uh, we'll be reading together our passage from Matthew 11, verse 25 to 30. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Let's pray together as we begin. Heavenly Father, God, thank you so much for these incredible words of comfort. Heavenly Father, may uh, familiarity not breed contempt. May we enjoy sitting and resting in this incredible invitation we pray tonight. And Heavenly Father, for those of us who are maybe hearing it for the first time, may it radically change us from here on into the rest of our lives. And we pray these things in your strong name. Amen. Well, tonight we are looking at our next instalment in Matthew's Gospel, and we're turning our attention to this well-known and beautiful passage that sits right in the middle of this section, if you remember, of rejection and judgment that Roger introduced to us last week. And understanding the context of this passage in particular is very important, because the wonderful thing about coming to a passage like tonight's is that it is well-known and well-loved. The difficult thing about coming to a passage like tonight's is that it is well-known and well-loved. And of all the verses in the Bible that we would choose to speak over each other as Christians in in times of difficulty, I, I think this passage might top them all, especially verses 28 to 30. And this is where the whole of this paragraph is aiming for. Come to me, says Jesus. All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. They are such beautiful words of comfort. And well, they should be used for our encouragement. And in fact, so compelling are these verses that the Book of Common Prayer uses them as the comfortable word to be read out and prayed out over the church. It is also called the familiar word the word that we enjoy sitting in and being at home in, words that we literally desire to rest in. And so it is good to use these well-known passages in these ways. That's how the Bible is to be used, for us speaking truth to each other's hearts by using Scripture, especially in times of great trial. The problem that we may have with these verses is that we know them so well, but we might miss more of the beauty of them because we miss the context in which they sit. And this is important especially tonight, because this word of comfort, this invitation of comfort, becomes all the more arresting when you see that it comes on the back of last week's passage. A passage, if you remember, filled with real doubt as to whether Jesus is who the Scriptures say he is. 
A passage of genuine disappointment. A passage that ends with the staggering denial of the Messiah by these unrepentant cities into which God incarnate had stepped. Cities who had the privilege that no one else has had before or since. Cities who remain lost and are, verse 23, brought down to Hades. It is in the air of real doubt and real disappointment and public denial and rejection of the Messiah and in the midst of profound judgment that this invitation of comfort, this word of revelation and rest bursts through the pages of Scripture like a lone star on a dark night. But it is within this air of denial and rejection and judgment that this word of revelation and rest, this word of comfort, also acts as a word of warning. And this we miss if we do not properly see how Jesus gets to verse 28. And this warning is revealed very clearly in our first point tonight, found in these first two verses of our passage. Don't be taken in, says Jesus, by the wise and the understanding. Read with me again those first two verses, 25 and 26. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Now, I wonder how these verses strike you as we read them together, especially if you're new to Christianity or new to church. On the face of it, it can seem at best disconcerting, at worst, slightly perverse, perhaps, that that God would be concealing anything of himself from certain people. And that seems to be what's happening here. There are truths that Jesus holds that are to be hidden in him. Now, what do we make of this? Well, to be able to answer this, we have to ask two questions. The first one being, what are these things that are being hidden in Christ that Jesus talks of? Again, Context is king, and this is important. Consider where we've been in Matthew. Jesus, in response to John the Baptist's question as to whether he really is, chapter 11, verse 3, the one who is to come, as we looked at last week, Jesus says very clearly in response to that, that he is. And he demonstrates how he fulfills the statements in the Old Testament concerning the Messiah, the one who was to make the blind see, that the deaf hear, the lame walk, and the dead raised to life. Jesus says, I'm doing these things. So tell John I am the one who was to come. Here's the proof from what I do, based on the scriptures that all talk about me. And what does Jesus say about John the Baptist, the greatest prophet, remember, the the signpost prophet, the one who was to actually point to the flesh and blood Messiah? What does Jesus say about this great man who seems to be beginning to doubt him? Chapter 11, verse 11. Truly I say to you, says Jesus, among those born of woman, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. John isn't condemned by Jesus for asking the question. And that is because John the Baptist is asking the right questions concerning the Christ. He understands what the scriptures say about the Christ, but as you remember from last week, under his bondage to Herod in prison, in the light of Jesus being rejected, John is a little worried that the judgment and the victory that the Messiah was to bring doesn't seem to be happening. And so he asks a good question. 
He asks the right question of the Christ. And Jesus responds deliberately and graciously, Yes, I am he, John. That is written about in the scriptures, don't worry. And buttressed up against this scene are these desperate cities in verses 20 to 24 to whom God presented himself in Christ, preaching the same message of forgiveness, doing the same mighty works, verse 21, that he had been doing all over Israel. These works of opening blind eyes and healing the sick and raising the dead, and yet they reject him. These cities, you see, are not asking the correct questions of the Christ. They do not recognize the Messiah from the scriptures that they should have known. And so they reject him. Can you see that this whole passage is wrapped around the proofs and scripture fulfillment and prophecy pointing that brings people to an understanding of who the Messiah is? And it is that which corresponds to these things in verse 25. It is these things, it is this understanding of the Christ from the whole of the Hebrew Bible, the understanding of Jesus' works and miracles and and words that set him out as the promised Messiah, an understanding that John the Baptist gets and these cities don't. It is these things, this revelation of who God is, that is hidden in Jesus. And so this brings us to our second question. Because the focus of these verses lie, don't they, not just on the things that are hidden, but on the people from whom these things, this revelation of God, is hidden. And these people are described as those who are wise and understanding. Well, who are the wise and understanding? Well, they must be, within the context of Matthew 11, and in the context of the whole of this book, the teachers of the law, or the scribes and the Pharisees, as Matthew calls them, the theological ruling elite who are rejecting Jesus all the way through this gospel. You see, the wise and the understanding are not people who are intelligent or who have PhDs or enjoy university, but that's not what's going on here. The wise and understanding are the people who really were wise and understanding in the eyes and minds of Israel. The scribes and the Pharisees are those who really should have recognized Jesus as Messiah. They really should have understood what he was saying and what he was doing in the light of their own scriptures. The wise and the understanding are those who were, in their own eyes and in the eyes of everyone around them, wise and understanding in the things of the Messiah, and yet they miss him. And this fits in perfectly with what Matthew builds all the way through his book. The folly and the hypocrisy of the religious leaders who should have known better. Who should have been preparing Israel for this Messiah. But who fail miserably in every respect. And in Matthew, this is a big, big theme. Throughout the entire book, the vindictiveness of the theological ruling elite, the the vehement, violent rejection of the Messiah the brutal theological oppression under which they subjugate Israel, the remarkable spiritual blindness of these scribes and Pharisees, it is all laid bare for us to see more than in any other gospel. And it escalates exponentially throughout the whole book in shocking terms. Matthew 3, verse 7. You brood of vipers, 
John the Baptist calls the scribes and the Pharisees, as they refuse to come in repentance in baptism. In other words, you hypocrites, you who claim to be harmless sticks but are in fact venomous snakes devouring the people of Israel. Matthew 16, verse 5, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, says Jesus to his disciples. Their hardness of heart infects the people who listen to them like yeast running through bread. The whole of Matthew chapter 23, the ugliest chapter in the whole of the New Testament. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, says Jesus. Woe to you, blind guides. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, says Jesus, you merciless, faithless, greedy, lawless, self-indulgent, self-righteous liars. And then we get to the sordid climax. Matthew 26, verse 3. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the place of the high priest, and they plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and to kill him. The Pharisees and the scribes thought they had it. They had all the education, all the books, all the knowledge, all the language, all the history... All the kings, all the prophets, all the priests, all the lineage, all the authority, all the wisdom, but they do not understand. They do not see. They are not wise. They do not ask the question, are you the one who is to come? And so in their enraged, blind hatred, the masters of Israel put to death the Son of God. From these self-righteous, worldly-wise, intelligent, highly theologically trained men of power, the understanding of the Messiah is hidden. As they refuse to come to him in humility and repentance, their pride and importance and wisdom gets in their way and they remain blind. Now, does this not, in many ways, remind us of the culture that we live in today? How many people are living in our society today, teaching in our theology schools today, preaching in our churches this evening, lecturing about the philosophy of this age in our lecture halls and through our media this week, People who claim to be wise and understanding, who are important and devout, who are revered and powerful in the eyes of the world, who are in their own way preaching their own gospels of salvation, just like these Pharisees, and who refuse to follow or acknowledge the Christ, who have no wisdom concerning the Messiah King. You see, what we read of here in Matthew eleven twenty-five is what Dick Lucas says, a representation of the age we live in today, both in society and as a church. We may not be ruled by the Pharisees, but we are ruled by people who are seen as wise and understanding, who are lauded and deeply admired in both the church and the state, and who hate Jesus. And herein lies the warning in this passage... To those listening to Jesus at the time, 
Jesus says, don't be taken in by these wise and understanding men who claim to know the way to God but are far from it. To those of us listening today, the warning still stands. Don't be taken in by those who are seen as wise and understanding, even in matters of faith and scripture. No matter how revered they are in the world, who claim to hold and reveal truth, who claim to know how to really live life, but do not love Jesus. They are not wise. They do not understand the things of God. Don't be taken in by them. In this time of Jesus, in the face of massive rejection of the gospel, militant legalism, rampant abuse of authority that caused John the Baptist to wobble as the people of Israel were following the leaders of the law blindly. And in the times we live in, in the face of massive rejection of the gospel, militant liberalism and rampant secularization, even in the church, that may cause us to wobble as we look on the people of the West following liberalism and the intelligence and the spirit of the age blindly, Jesus says to both sets of listeners, don't be taken in by them. The people that you are seen as revered and are seen as right, says Jesus, don't listen to them. They don't have the answers. But as much as this revelation is hidden from them, it is being revealed, verse 25, to little children. And if the wise and the understanding are the scribes and the Pharisees, then the little children are those lost and helpless Israelites under their care, those whom the Pharisees thought nothing of. In short, it is to those who are seen as foolish by the world, as 1 Corinthians 1 reminds us, those who are weak, those who are unassuming, those who are unwise in the eyes of the world, who will understand the Messiah... In other words, it is those who stood up this very night before the gathered people of God and said, I do, to Jesus Christ as they publicly and humbly admitted that they had nothing before him. That they needed God's grace to even open a Bible daily. These guys have a far greater understanding, a far more profound theology of the Messiah King than the Chancellor of the most renowned theological seminary on earth who does not know Jesus. It is to these people, those who are humble and childlike in their faith, coming with no wisdom or knowledge, claiming no wisdom or knowledge, standing on no wisdom or knowledge, that the Messiah will reveal himself. For such was the Father's good and gracious will. But all this raises an excellent question. As a first century Jew who would have got all his theological understanding and wisdom concerning God from these Pharisees, who was he expected to turn to? Well, says Jesus, turn to the one who knows everything there is to know about God. Don't be taken in by the wise and understanding, for no one knows God but God alone. Read with me verse 27 again. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. You see what's going on here? 
The teachers of the law claimed to know God and how to get to him. But who really holds all the knowledge about God and what his plan is? God alone. Who understands fully the relationship of the Holy Trinity wrapped up in the the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the deep things of God? God alone. And therefore, who do we turn to to find out more about God and who he is and how to find him? God alone. And that is where Jesus comes in. You see, it is absolutely fundamental that we have God himself telling us about himself. We need God himself to somehow step into our world and show us what he is like. And so we need God incarnate, Jesus Christ, flesh and blood, born of woman, born in Bethlehem, living and dwelling among us, so that we could properly see God. And that's exactly what verse 27 very clearly tells us. All things, including all these things that we've been talking about, all the knowledge of the Son and the Messiah and and the Father and all revelation concerning God, all the stuff that has been hidden from those who are arrogant and wise in their own eyes, it has all been given to Jesus to reveal. No one knows the Father except the Son, and no one can reveal the Father except the Son. The only way I can know God, then, is through Jesus Christ. In short, don't go to man or the world to find God. Go to God himself. And can you see how this helps us dramatically in the life of our cultural situation as we've described only a few minutes ago? When I'm sitting in my lecture theatre as a student, fighting against the spirit of the age that claims itself to be the god of our time, who do I turn to? The one who alone knows God and who has made him known. For those who are sitting in theology classes, imbibing the liberalism of the years that has eroded the church as it claims many ways to God and many views of God, who am I more convinced by? The one who alone knows God and has made him known. When I'm listening to Radio 4, watching a comedy show on the television where God is mercilessly mocked, when I'm involved in a political debate and it is mortifying to even think about saying what I really believe as a Christian, when I am dropping off my kids at school or at nursery, seeing the statements that are being taught to my children as true and right and good and wise, pinned to the corridor walls in all of their pithy emptiness, who do I run to? Who am I not ashamed by in those moments? The one who alone knows God and has made him known. Jesus Christ. As a first century Jew, when the masters of Israel, the keepers of the covenant of God, are living contrary to the word of God, living lives of hypocrisy, being kept from a knowledge of God in their arrogance and pride, who does this Jew turn to? He turns to the one who alone knows God and who has made God known. Now, can you see what Jesus is doing here in this passage? In verses 25 to 26, he is pointing to a failed authority. 
the authority to which everyone looked, the teachers of God's own law, men held in enormous reverence and high esteem. Don't be taken in by them, says Jesus. Instead, verse 27, turn your eyes to the only authority, me. And so, over a weary, weary Israel, over a weary, weary Edinburgh, over a brutalized world church, over a desperate British church, over a beleaguered Western Christianity, over the multitude of lost, dying people sitting in lost, dying churches, working in corporate offices, studying in places of high academia, drowning in a life that just does not make sense, which offers everything and produces nothing, led on by an authority that is lying to them and failing them, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who has been given all authority, says, Come to me. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Don't be taken in by the wise and understanding. For no one knows God but God alone. So come to God, to Jesus, whose yoke is easy and whose burden is light. Now we get to the heart of this incredible invitation. To Israel at the time, in the face of their failed leaders, rest is exactly what they needed. Just listen later on in Matthew, in this ugly passage that we touched on earlier, chapter 23, where Jesus, in his righteous anger, tears the teachers of the law apart. Just listen to what these scribes and Pharisees are accused of. Matthew 23, 3 to 4. They preach, but they do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens that are hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger. Look at the contrast with Jesus. Come to me, and I will give you rest. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. For the readers and listeners hearing this for the first time, those who labor and heavy laden, they are these poor souls, these little children who are being brutalized by a barbaric theology of a failed authority. Asked to live up to a legal system that no one was expected to keep. In fact, as we'll see next week in the very next chapter, asked to keep laws that weren't even given by God. God's invitation then in the light of that, in the light of the reality living under this horrible human ruling elite, is beautiful. But not only is it beautiful, it is also comprehensive. Who is eligible for God under the eyes of the Pharisees and the scribes? Matthew 23 tells us this. It is those who are like them, wise and learned, accepted on the national stage, given the stamp of approval by men. Who is eligible to come to Jesus? All. This invitation is available to all. To all those in Israel desperate to find God, but unable to under their leaders. 
To everyone today who identifies with being so tired, trying to find the meaning of life and happiness. To the religious, desperately trying to reach heaven by works. To the irreligious, desperately trying to reach paradise through hedonism. Both desperate, all tired, because they are straining for something. Jesus says to all of these people, then and now, come to me and I will give you rest. I will give you rest from all of that fruitless straining. And that understanding of rest here is so important. Because there is one more question that roars away in the back of our minds as we sit in these verses, isn't there? And it is this. Is all this not just too good to be true? Because the truth is, More often than not, our lives are hard, hard graft. Spiritually, emotionally, physically, mentally. Some of us are here tonight and we are at the end of ourselves. And even in Christ, the last thing I feel is rested. Sometimes, in fact, it feels as if I'm pulling a load that is just too great to bear. I'm going to snap. What of these verses then? Well, what Jesus says here is incredibly helpful. Because not only is this invitation beautiful and comprehensive, it is also very honest. There is a yoke we have to wear, says Jesus. There is a burden we have to be bearing in following Christ, and this is the cost of discipleship. And this makes sense, doesn't it? If we were to step out again of this passage a little bit, remember where the whole of the book of Matthew is pointing towards. Chapter 28, 18 to 20. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. We've just been looking at exactly that tonight. Go, therefore, says Jesus, and make disciples of all nations. Jesus is preparing us to be his disciples who will be ready to make disciples. That's what these guys are sent to up here tonight in front of you. And in order to do that, we need to sit under his schooling and under his tutelage. That is why, verse 28, he says we learn from him. It makes sense as he trains us and as he hones us, ready for discipleship and evangelism, that we sit under his yoke and under his burden. That is the nature of the Christian life. And at points that will be very hard. But contrast the cost of discipleship the yoke of Christ, the instruction of Jesus, with the cost and the yoke and the instruction of the Pharisees and the authorities of our day. It was the pharisaical burden that verse 23 of chapter 11 led these unrepentant cities to Hades. What the school of the Pharisees produced was death. There is the spirit of our age that would leave thousands dying without Christ. It is liberal theology that will leave thousands dying without Christ, thinking they were right. The yoke of the wise and understanding is cruel. The yoke and the burden that Christ offers is the one that, by comparison, is easy. Literally, in the Greek, kind. Because unlike the Pharisees who are wise and arrogant... Christ is a gentle master, verse 29, who is lowly of heart. 
and because, unlike the yoke and instruction of the Pharisees, the cost of discipleship ultimately leads to rest. And this is real rest. Rest of the soul. Not a holiday. Real rest. And this helps us as as we grapple with what all this really looks like. Because in this school of discipleship under Christ, we will suffer. But we can still experience this rest of the soul now. It is a rest I can have now as even in my darkest, most bitter moments, I find refuge in the one who endured the darkest night for my soul. It is a rest I can have now, as even in the midst of incredible suffering, I sit in the hands of the one who suffered even more so in my place. It is a rest I can have now, as even in the midst of remarkable pain and loss, I am carried in the arms of the one who bore more pain and loss on my behalf than we could ever imagine. It is a rest I can have now, as even in my desperation in the face of a cruel and hostile world, I cling on to dear life, to the one who sat in a garden in desperation and sweat drops of blood as to what he was going to have to endure for my sake. It is a rest I can have now, as even when I fail and fail big, I am allowed to crawl back to the one who did not fail. It is a rest I can have now, as even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, because I can fix my eyes on the one who died for me, and who rose again for me, and who gloriously forever carries my burden of sin and shame. That's what this rest means. Not always a feeling, but an unshakable knowledge, an unbreakable assurance, a deep, enduring trust in the Spirit and in the Word of God that is constantly speaking to my heart a truth which allows me to hear in my most extreme moments the cry of God through the ages that shouts, you are mine because of Christ. That is the rest that Jesus offers now. And that is the rest that Jesus offers in the future. The reality of a single moment when I stand before the throne room of heaven dressed in the robes of Christ, ready to hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant, come and enter my rest. What better way to finish off this sermon than to do so with communion? Little did the disciples know what Jesus was doing when he broke bread and drank wine. Little did they know that all too soon Christ was going to publicly enact the whole of the Passover meal, taking on himself the role of the slaughtered lamb. Little did they know that their future rest, their freedom from bondage to their rulers, who would not lift a finger to help them, was to come in the form of the Son of God who lifted his body onto a cross to help them, bearing the weight of their own sin. If you're not a Christian tonight, please do not leave without seriously considering this Christ. This is not too good to be true. It is too good for you to dismiss out of hand. Christ's invitation is to you tonight. It is beautiful. 
It is comprehensive and it is honest. I challenge you to seriously look at Christ. Please don't leave here without talking to one of us about what that decision looks like. If you're a follower of Jesus tonight, in the light of this passage, even in your brokenness and some of you in your desperation, we are allowed to do something now that is remarkable. We are allowed to enjoy this rest together as we prepare ourselves to do what Jesus tells us to do, to eat and to drink and to remember him. Let's pray together as we close. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you so much for these incredible words of comfort. Heavenly Father, God, thank you so much for your Son, Jesus Christ, who made you known by stepping into our world, becoming human, becoming flesh and blood, and dwelling among us, and ultimately going to the cross for us. Heavenly Father, we are staggered by this gospel. Lord God, I pray that tonight we would be free to throw ourselves onto you in our desperation, in our disappointment, in our frailties, in our cares, and in our concerns. Lord God, if we have been Christians for a while, may we be warmed and may we remember again just what Christ has done for us and just what he does for us all the time, constantly carrying us in his hands. For those of us who do not know you, Heavenly Father, I pray that you would break into lives and that they would seek you and find you and discover this rest from all the striving that the world doesn't, doesn't help us with. Lord God, thank you so much for this gospel. Lord, be with us tonight, we pray. May we go out of here and be willing to be disciples that make disciples as we tell others about this wonderful gospel of rest. We pray all these things in the mighty name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.